Welcome back to Pursuing Justice. We have spent the last uh, few podcasts uh, talking about a, the, the play, The Exonerated, which was um, performed uh, in New York City, oh, I would say just about 20 years ago. Um, and we have the writers of that play uh, who have continued to write things that are quite contemporary. Eric Jensen and Jessica Blank are with us today again. And thank you for being with us. Welcome. It's a pleasure to be back. Thanks for having us. All right. So we, we've we talked a lot about um, the origins of the play, um, how you funded it, how you actually put it together. Um, I found it very amusing that uh, in the book that you write, Living Justice, which is the story of how the play came to be written, um, you talk about directions to someone's house in places that seem to have a shortage of road signs where a, a dairy queen or a river trestle with the markers did you i i love it because we didn't have gps in those days did you get lost um a great deal well, oh my god we yeah. were talking about the case with with yeah uh, definitely uh, the case with <laughs> david keaton in particular i, I can't remember what state david, florida. florida northern florida northern florida and and um we kept driving down the same <laughs> street lost. we got badly lost we kept driving down the same street and finally david was yelling at us from his porch you know there was, like you know white people <laughs> like you know, <laughs> A couple of white kids in a rental car, like nine o'clock at night, driving back and forth to the same spot. Finally, Dave was like <laughs> waving at us from his porch. Here, I'm over here. You know, there were no house numbers on, on the. You know, and and it it it. You know, what 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 amazed me with everybody that we talked to was everybody's uh, generosity with their stories and also how how kind and generous they were to us to invite us into their houses to speak to them about the most difficult thing that you could imagine happening to you but it actually happened to them the most, you know imagine inviting somebody into your house to talk to them about the most difficult thing that's ever happened in your life i i, I wouldn't i wouldn't welcome that but um, you know there's an incredible generosity of spirit uh, um, a couple of cases that 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 you know um, that sort of stick out for me uh, are uh, first of all the case of uh, Gary Gogger uh, in Illinois. Uh, Jessica can kind of speak to a little bit to that about what happened to Gary. But Gary's uh, parents were murdered, uh, and uh, um, uh, unbeknownst to him, I believe he was asleep upstairs in his in his in his was he was he was he even. I, they lived on a farm, right. and I and I believe he was asleep in a different building right. um, when it happened. And he his sister, I believe, found that, no a customer. Customer. They ran right. a motorcycle shop. They had a farm, and they also ran a motorcycle shop on on the property. And a customer came up looking for motorcycle parts. And in the and back, Gary brought him back and in the, he brought him back and in the back room where they were looking for a part that he actually discovered his parents' bodies. Um, and, you know, within a very short period of time after he called the police immediately and um, within a very short period of time after the police got there, they had arrested Gary um, wrongfully for the murder of his own parents. Um, and they took him to the station. He was questioned for hours and hours and hours. And of course, he wanted to help. They were his parents. Um, I don't even know that it necessarily occurred to him to ask for an attorney um, because he, you know, he was one of the folks that said to us, he's a white guy. 
And he is one of the folks that said to us that he tr trusted the police initially when they brought him in. And he didn't think that the police were allowed to lie to you. Right. And, and in fact, I believe they told him that they were not allowed to lie to him. Right. Um, and uh, which, unfortunately, they did not abide by. And they, they claimed that they had evidence of they had a knife. They had. Uh, they, they told had, him this. They told him that they had his bloody clothes that they found and that he must have blacked out and killed his parents. And, um, and because he trusted them, he believed that they actually had that evidence, which they did not. Um, and and finally, after many, many hours, they convinced him to give what they called a vision statement, a hypothetical account of what he would have done if he had killed his parents. And as Eric said, after after that, he said, you know, this is all hypothetical. This is not real. He broke down crying. He said, none of this actually happened. I'm just saying, you know, I'm asking, I'm doing what you're asking me to do. And then at trial, that, um, and, and I should say also, that interrogation was not recorded. No. It was not videotaped. Um, it, I believe, actually, that was part of what, um, there is a law that was later passed in Illinois mandating videotaping of interrogations in cases that could become capital cases. Um, and I believe that his case was one, his wrongful conviction was one of the reasons why that law actually ultimately passed. Um, because the vision statement that he made um, was used against him at trial as a quote-unquote confession, even though it was not a confession. And had his interrogation been videotaped, that would have been completely clear to the jury. Later on, uh, they got a couple of, of uh, bikers talking uh, from, a, from a, a sort of a statewide biker gang. The FBI was investigating. The FBI had been investigating this biker gang, and they got a couple of bikers talking about how they had actually killed Gary's parents. and, and um, Accidentally. Ac it was picked up on a wire. But, you know... But, like, even though they had that evidence, prosecutors fought it and fought it and fought it. And it was like, you know, it just, you know, um, the, 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 the vigor with which they insisted that they were right when they were so clearly wrong is, is kind of astonishing to me, you know. But that's sort of present in all the cases. Another case that, that's a, a little more complicated but nonetheless tragic is the case of uh, Sonny Jacobs. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, she was wrongfully convicted, along with, I believe, her husband, Jesse Teferro, of uh, the murder of, of uh, two officers. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and uh, now that that case, you could do an entire three shows just on that case. Oh, that's for sure. But um, but you know, um, uh, eventually, uh, uh, Sonny was was exonerated and and released from prison. But you know, to this day, there are people involved with that case. You know, even after there's such clear evidence of her innocence, that you know, insist that she had something to do with it. And uh, you know, uh, which is an indignity that a lot of these folks live with, right? I mean, you were you were asking in a previous episode, like, what assumptions did we come into this process about people who were in prison, mm. right? And there, unfortunately, are many, many people out there who believe, well, if you're in prison, you must have done something, right? There's a real investment in believing that the system works the way it's supposed to and that police and prosecutors don't make mistakes. Because once we open the door to understanding that police and prosecutors make mistakes and sometimes egregiously, intentionally mm -hmm. act in unethical and ways and commit misconduct, then all of a sudden, you know, the world can become a scarier place. If you think the authorities are supposed to be taking care of you and suddenly the authorities are flawed human beings, 
there can be resistance to believing that and people dig their heels in thinking, you know, well, if you're in prison, you must have done something. And unfortunately, many of the people that we know, the death row exonerees that we know, are still dogged by that, even after the courts have set them free, and in some cases, even after the real killer has been convicted. Yeah, no, and 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 even you know, in some cases, when DNA evidence has come out, mm, I mean, right. it's 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 a it's a it's a it's a it's interesting. It's this is not a, a survey that we did, and and certainly we only talked to forty people, and there's a lot more to to be said about it. But we actually found that people that we talked to from the African American community. Uh, had an easier time reintegrating back into their community after this because mm-hmm. I think wrongful conviction is 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 in 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 that world is just a, a way of life. People understand. It's more understood. It's a more understood thing. Um, Caucasian people that we talked to had uh, just 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 generally speaking had a, a much harder time reintegrating after their exoneration because of of, of certain beliefs that are held in, in, in those communities. So, you know, it, it uh, that was an eye-opener for me, you know. Yeah, absolutely. There, there's another heart-wrenching story of a man named Brad Scott that you talk about who was on death row for five years. He was unique in that his wife remained married to him and continued to visit even though it was, <clears throat> excuse me, an eight-hour drive each way to see him. Can you talk about the impact of something like that on the family? Isn't the family, in effect, sentenced to? Yes. yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that that's something that, unless you've had any direct contact with the criminal justice system, is something that a lot of people don't understand, that when somebody is in prison, their family is in effect in prison with them or going through that experience with them. Um, it did, you know, the carceral system doesn't only punish the people who are thrown in prison, it punishes their families and it punishes their communities as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there are, you know, Sunny's case is explicit. She was con- conv- wrongly convicted with her common law husband, who was also wrongly convicted, and he wound up being executed, right? Right. But, but you know, sort of less explicitly, the spouses and children of the folks that we met have also been through hell. Right. And yeah. And the system keeps families apart. I mean, the rules about visiting, the rule that, I mean, even down to like how much it costs to make a collect call to your family out of prison mm-hmm. unit right. and people can't afford it. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's, I've, I've started to see, I've, I've grown more radical about my beliefs about the prison uh, industrial complex uh, since doing exonerated and just talking to more people and sort of being in the sort of um, exoneree community um, but also being a part of a, uh, the TV show uh, for life, um, you know, I've st- I've started to view, um, and this is my own view. I've just started to view the the, the private prison system as an extension of, of racism, of of slavery. Um, you know, I I I um, I think the way that 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 uh, we've industrialized prison in the United States is just an extension of slavery, and 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 it's a and it's you know we're we have the potential to be the greatest country in the world in terms of in terms of our civic discourse and, and in terms of justice. And we just we just fail to hit the mark every time. Yeah. You know, if it's not if it's if it's not uh, 
if it's not evident to people now, it will be. It will be eventually. Like I, I, I still have hope that people will 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 see it for what it is. I mean, we're just we're we're perpetuating this this uh, caste system uh, through our prisons in 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 the U.S. and it needs to stop. You know, it, it's just it's not benefiting anybody. It's 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 uh, it's 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 causing more harm than good. And by splitting these families up. You know, you're 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 um, you're with you know um, a lot of the inmates being male. You know, you're you're creating a situation where there's there's a, a generation of kids without dads, and and that's 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 got a whole that's got its own echoes and its own blowback. You know, so I, I just think that it I think that it it's um, you know it, it's something that I didn't see before we did exonerated and and uh, something I hoped we would be further along with. I think recently uh, President Biden has uh, uh, put out some edicts to, uh, or a signing statement or something to sort of end our relationship with, with, pri with private prisons, mm -hmm. uh, which is a big step forward. Um, but, you know, the, 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 uh, the state-run and the federally-run prisons have their own issues. And, you know, and then, and then, of course, with COVID and stuff like that, these, these problems have only become more apparent. Oh, yeah, that's true. Um, I wanted just to go back again to the play, The Exonerated, and um, I love the section that you talk about in your book about inviting a number of exonerees to be at the opening. Uh, you wasn't possible to have everybody that you interviewed to be there because money was an issue um, and airline tickets were needed, but many of them had never been to New York City. I wanted to, to maybe briefly tell us about some of their experiences, but I would like to know what it was like also for both of you to finally see the play from the vantage point of the audience. I mean, terrifying. <laughs> The very, the very first reading of the play, I mean, the, several of the people portrayed in the play um, have get, came and saw it at many times during its life. Some, some of them even performed in it yeah. um, over time. But the very first reading of the play um, that we did in New York had some really extraordinary actors in it. Charles Dutton, Susan Sarandon, Tim Robbins, like really amazing, amazing people. Um, and it was an early version of the play. The play wasn't even finished yet, but we had a public reading. And um, at that time, I think there were twelve stories, uh, eleven, the, eleven stories or twelve in stories the play, in the play. Yeah. Yeah. And the the theater had traveled some of the exonerees whose stories were in the play um, to see it, and they were in the audience that night. And we knew they were in the audience that night, but nobody else in the theater knew they were in the audience, including the actors. Yeah, we'd managed to keep it we'd from the actors. We kept it a secret. And um, at the end of the reading, there was applause. And then one of the cast members stood up and asked the audience, um, or actually, it must have been. It was Larry Marshall. It, must, it was Larry Marshall. He, he was there also. And he asked the audience to quiet down. And from the audience, he brought up several of the exonerees who were there. And the, the audience just leapt to their feet and all of the actors were crying and we were I'm crying. tearing up thinking about it right I now. Mean, yeah. Aside from, you know, our personal things like the moment we got married and the birth of our daughter, it was really, and actually the families who just came to see Coal Country right before mm -hmm. COVID, it was one of the most profound moments of my entire life. I, it was really, um, to be able to see those 
exonerees be honored in the way that they deserved and know that their stories had been heard deeply in the way that they deserved to be heard deeply without having to go through the emotional labor of telling them themselves. Yeah. Right. But to just be able to sit there and receive that response from the audience um, just felt like, all right, well, this is what art is supposed to do. This is, this is what our job is now for better, or for worse, for the rest of our lives. Our job is to figure out how to do that again and again. And I, 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 we set a really high bar in that moment <laughs> and we've been trying to leap over that bar, uh, ever since, you know, it, it, it's funny, Sonny Jacobs, um, after seeing the play the first time she came up to me, she was crying and, um, she definitely felt seen and she felt heard and, 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 um, and she said, you know, at one point during the play, I just kept thinking, oh, this poor woman, look, look what's happened to this poor woman. <laughs> and, you know, it was kind of a funny little joke that she made to me about that. But, you know, I think, I think for a lot of people who uh, are involved in our documentary theater projects, um, you know, uh, having their stories heard in that, in this strange form that we've fallen into, um, is 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 a is can become a way to let go of the story too, and to let go of the hardest parts of the story, and know that you know just just being heard, knowing that you're heard. We were told by when we did our, our play Coal Country, which was about the uh, Upper Big Branch mine disaster in West Virginia that took the lives of 29 men. It was an avoidable disaster, I think. Um, uh, the um, the the people who from West Virginia who came to see the play in New York literally said to us, we thought nobody cared. We thought in our tiny little community, this thing had happened and the news trucks were there for a week or two and then they went away and we thought everybody had forgotten about us and we thought nobody cared. And certainly nobody from New York City cared. And, you know, we're always trying to bridge that gap as artists. We're always trying to, we're always trying to, um, you know, uh, there's a there's a giving voice to people whose whose voices have maybe been muted or haven't been heard fully yet. That uh, there's a sort of a uh, uh, I think mission that we're on still um, to um, to uh, put front and center the stories of people who aren't usually put front and center. Um, that's uh, been a theme uh, in in all of our documentary projects, and that's that's true of uh, the Iraqi refugees that we interviewed for Aftermath. Certainly true. Of, of, of the at, at the time uh, people have heard from doctors and nurses and stuff now but our, our play about uh, the onset of COVID uh, in New York City uh, called the line uh, those voices weren't being heard they were being squelched by by yet another system that's that's flawed and imperfect which is the 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 uh, the hospital system, which uh, is the medical, the medical, complex. the medical industrial complex, and which has its own history of racism and, and, and inequity in it. But, you know, these these doctors, nurses and EMTs really needed to be heard. And in that case, we interviewed people anonymously so they'd have more freedom to speak about about uh, their circumstance. And we disguised uh, details and stuff like that in order for them to be able to speak freely. But I remember, you know, something that Sonny said to me further on down the life of the exonerated. She said, you know, when I was in there, I knew there were so many other people in there who were just as innocent as I was. Mm -hmm. And 
they didn't have a documentarian who got interested in their case and started fighting for them. They didn't have access to pro bono lawyers who could come uncover the evidence and, you know, look at the forensics again and bring the truth to light. They didn't have the resources I did. And so when I got out, I felt this incredible sense of responsibility to tell my story everywhere I could for them, right? So that people would know that this is something that happens, right? That there are innocent people in there. But she said after a while, it started getting emotionally exhausting because I was reliving the worst things that happened to me over and over and over again. And I was finally out and I just wanted to live. I just wanted to embrace joy and like build a new life. And I was really torn. And she said the play actually gave me a gift because now I know that my story is being told and that work is being done, but I don't have to tell it all the time anymore. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a great point. Um, I, we, we talked about the uh, uh, audience reaction to the play, your reaction, the exoneree's reaction, and the actors, I'm sure, were certainly deeply moved. But in, in your book, you talk about um, the fact that there are people who come up to you afterwards, and they're not quite um, as sympathetic. Um, ha- does that happen uh, rarely, and it maybe answer that in terms of all the plays that you've done, not necessarily the exonerated? Are there people on the other side that maybe have um, a, a different reaction to the well, plays? First of all, I'd say that there are no sides. Okay. All right. <laughs> or there would, are would, many, many I would, sides. I would, I would That's fair. Mm-hmm. That idea, but because we're we're you know what we're concerned with is the human side, and 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 mm-hmm. qualifies. Um, but you know, it's interesting. I, when uh, when the line came out about uh, COVID, mm-hmm. uh, I got a lot of pushback on Twitter from some people who mm-hmm. insisted that it was propaganda. And I like we didn't ask people whether they were a Democrat or a Republican before we interviewed them. We we just wanted to talk about healthcare workers and what their experience was like experiencing this horrible thing. And and you know that the the fact that people want to break it down into into oh well this is you know you're telling a story therefore it's propaganda or whatever you're propagandizing something. No, we're not. We're actually asking people to empathize, which is which is which is very different than than propaganda. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I I'm I'm always surprised at at what people want to push on so that they'll stay safe. You know, admitting that the criminal justice system is racist, admitting that 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 George Floyd's experience is really the rule, not the exception, is is a very difficult thing for some people to do. And and um, you know, there's a there's a there's a there's a kind of vulnerability that you have to submit to when you admit that that things are stacked the wrong way. That the system doesn't work. That the system doesn't work. And it, it, I think it leaves a lot of people who um, are traditionally uh, right now at the moment anyway in positions of power feeling very vulnerable and afraid. And, you know, these shows, these, these, these testimonials, these monologues, they're, they're, an invitation to, they're an invitation to openness and they're an invitation to engage with that fear and come out better and to evolve, you know? And, um, you know, so, you know, yeah, we get pushed back. There's naysayers. There's, 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 
you know, prosecutors who insist that we're the devil. Um, but, you know, it, it, to, 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 to me, like those people slowly over time um, are, are, are getting muted out by, by, uh, by truth telling. You know, it just it means just showing up and listening over and over and over again. And, and you know, I don't know what our next documentary theater piece is going to be. Uh, I can't imagine ever being in a theater again uh, at, at, at the moment. I don't, Although we will be before we, uh, we, we hope let's, so. Let's hope. Let's hope. Yeah. yeah you know, I, I don't I don't like sitting next to a person is something that that's going to be difficult for me for the next mm-hmm. couple of years, probably. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, to uh, to be in communion with people is to engage in community and to be in community is to see uh, the things that 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 bind us are to, to see our similarities and seeing similarities is a very vulnerable thing. And it's hard to do, especially in our polarized world that we live in now. But like I say, you know, love everybody all the time. And the best way to love people is to listen. Yeah. And absolutely. we're in the privileged position of being able to do that and being able to do it in a formalized way and to bring that to people. And I feel very, I feel very, uh, I feel a, a, an immense amount of gratitude for being put in that, that position. Well, I feel an immense amount of gratitude having spent so much time with both of you um, talking about your book, your play, uh, the play, The Exonerated, but the other the other uh, creations that you have done as well, um, and they were all so timely, uh, each, each uh, play that you have written. So I thank you so very, very much. We're just about out of time for sharing all your experiences over the last 20 some years and i wish you well i i hope there will be another play that you want to write and share with with all of us so thank you both jessica and eric this was a great pleasure to have you on my podcast today and i hope people uh, really got something from listening to both of you well, thank you, Harriet, and thanks to your uh, producer, Katie, as well, for having us. And, and we just feel very privileged to be able to talk to you, and, and thanks for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you, too.